This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line all the way from Devon in the UK is Mr. Michael Ash. He received his osteopathy and naturopathy training at the College of Osteopaths in London, UK. He's provided continuous healthcare since 1982. For 25 years, he was the founder and principal clinician at the Eldon Health Clinic, one of the largest integrative medicine clinics in the southwest of England, where he employed the principles of practice of functional medicine from 1991 until he sold that practice in 2011. Mike remains in private practice, offering specialist care for patients with complex mucosal immune-related conditions that require functional medicine planning to resolve their health needs. He also lectures extensively and internationally and is adjunct faculty member of the Institute for Functional Medicine, a USA-based educational group using education, research and collaboration to train clinicians on the strategic objective of managing and reversing chronic disease. Mike has written hundreds of articles for mainstream peer-reviewed and technical journals and he reads them all. In addition, he has written chapters for textbooks, presented at many conferences over five continents and taught thousands of clinicians in how to mediate and resolve mucosal immune-driven dysfunctions. And I welcome you heartily, Mike, back to FX Medicine. How are you? I'm very well, Andrew, and thank you for that extremely generous. <laughs> I could have gone on there. There was about another page and a half to your bio. <laughs> That's Mike, quite long enough, <laughs> Mike. And and I really mean, I, I really do mean that when I say you've read them all. I cannot believe how much you read. You you really need a life. But anyway, you, you've spent a good part of a quarter of a century not just researching but treating patients, um, and with extremely complex conditions in uh, you know like autism and ASD. But first, can you take our listeners through what attracted you first to be an osteopath and then break into integrative medicine? What's your history? Well. I think like many people, I had an experience of uh, an illness when I was uh, 15. I, I suffered from something called brucellosis. It knocked me uh, out of my track. Uh, I was um, a fairly successful student in those days and uh, was planning a, a reasonably productive professional career in medicine, and it knocked me off for a, for a whole year. Mm. And I sort of lost a little bit of uh, momentum, went on to do a slightly skewed version into business studies, uh, particularly like economics and politics. I started studying those. Uh, and then I was also recovering uh, to become a reasonably competent athlete, particularly in squash. I still played for my county and kept myself active. And I hurt my back one day when I was running. Hmm. And uh, standard care didn't seem to get it better. And it was very frustrating. I went and saw this strange chap called an osteopath who was recommended to me. And uh, you know, he threw me around and clicked a few things, and within a few days, I felt fine. And that sort of sat with me for quite a long time whilst I was doing my first degree. And I was thinking, hmm, I wonder how and why that happened. You know, it sort of looked and felt weird, but definitely had the impact. And then I took a degree in economics and politics, but um, wasn't terrifically um, convinced that was where I wanted to go. I hmm. also took um, some secondary qualifications in business studies and. 
felt a bit disorientated towards the end. And I tried to persuade, very funny, I tried to persuade my parents that we should buy a big manor house in Devon and open up a health farm, as I felt in 1979, that health farms are going to be the future. Mm. And that I would effectively uh, just look, swan around and look after it. But my father pointed out that wasn't going to happen uh, unless I took up some sort of professional qualification. So he re-engaged oh. my thoughts and uh, I went and took on osteopathy and naturopathy. I did that over a five-year period. Uh, and then at the same time realized that the naturopathic medicine I was being taught was a bit limited. So I took on some training in uh, nutrition, which is number three-year course. Uh, all the time I'm doing either part-time or towards full-time practice at this stage. Uh, at the end of all that, I still felt I was missing a lot of connections between human health and nutrition and immunology. I was asked to do a course on immunology and it really resonated with me. Here was um, a bridge between human functionality and what we eat, consume and think. Uh, and so I began to attend immunology conferences in the States. I took on some postgraduate immunology training and uh, I began to invest, as you rightly pointed out, thousands of hours of reading uh, research papers. And so I taught myself a large part of immunology um, and found that mucosa immunology, which was quite new back in the uh, 1980s and early 1990s, was definitely an area that made sense to me. It's the biggest area that we have in external contact with our environment. A tremendous amount of activity takes place there on a daily basis. It's clearly plastic, and we can influence changes there quite quickly. And people presenting less with infectious disease at the practice, but more with disturbed immune-type diseases, mm. um, seem to respond when I was quite clumsily intervening back in the early 1990s. And so I just began to think, if I'm going to try and learn this, perhaps I should write about it. Uh, I think it's always a good idea to try and publish something about a subject. It really helps to refine your thought processes. So I began to publish and write, and then in the therapy that to talk, that gets people to come and see me, and you sort of get stuck in this cycle of having to forever try and learn more to get ahead of the next complex case that comes to see you. So my practice grew and grew. I had lots of colleagues uh, working with me at that time, and uh, I didn't have access to um, any form of invasive interventions or pharmaceutical interventions, but uh, I learned a lot about natural uh, techniques for modifying uh, everything from antibodies to T-cell phenotypes, cytokine progression, um, rather more sophisticated stuff. I began to pay for research to be done and explore these areas. So ultimately, um, I found that I could help people with what you and I would describe um, immune disorders of a non-specific nature and mm. autism. Um, and autistic spectrum disorders became a big feature for me for about 15 years, primarily because of the apparent but difficult to define changes in both gastrointestinal functionality and uh, immunology. And so I spent another eight or nine years reading about gastroenterology and um, attending gastroenterology conferences, most of whom never speak to immunologists, of course. Mm. Um, and at the same time, I was um, working with and teaching at IFM and trying to pull the strands from different disciplines into one reasonably coherent explanation so that there's a if you are somebody working in a room 
seeing somebody come and see you, you've got some reasonable, coordinated way of thinking, is this person immunologically disturbed? What's it likely to be? Where is the primary tissues? What can I take away that might make that better? What can I add to them that might make it better? And what is safe throughout that process? Yeah. I, I remember you speaking. I think it, you came out in, was it 2004, 2005, when, you first, when I first met you in Australia? Yes, uh, it's a day, of course, which is written into my diary. And, I, <laughs> and scribbled on, yes, I know, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, your talk, like I'd heard the concepts that you were speaking about a decade before that, but they didn't resonate with me. And I, I'll always remember being in that room in Brisbane at the Stanford Hotel, and it was like a sledgehammer. It wasn't just a light bulb going on. It was like someone hit me. And I remember you speaking about um, Charles Janeway, and immunology. And then you spoke about how you can manipulate the gut environment, which is the tenet of naturopathic treatment, and switch um, switch the immune system into what you want to achieve. Um, but I think one of the problems with naturopaths or naturopathic treatment is we seem to get caught up in what I call the switch mentality of good and bad even to the point of how we ignore our response to good bacteria, what we'd like to think is good bacteria is to form a mucus layer to keep them outside. And you spoke about the fence. So I'm going to ask you, why do practitioners, both orthodox and natural, get so confused with good and bad? Well, it makes life much easier. <laughs> um, the compartmentalism. Genuinely. Yeah, yeah, genuinely, we are trained... Um, from a very early age to try and compartmentalize both risk and benefit. And we don't like necessarily understanding that it's messy. Uh, it's much easier if we just have a bad guy and a good guy and the good guy ultimately wins. <laughs> Hollywood has perpetuated that myth. And medicine, to some degree, um, has tried to formulate uh, in both patients' and physicians' minds that there's going to be a good ability to treat a bad event. And just like relationships are rarely singularly good or bad, um, the dynamics that take place in human health are in constant flux. And we share our body with a myriad of organisms, uh, and we do so for a very good reason. And those reasons aren't always equally appreciated by both parties. So what might appear to be a reasonable range of good good organisms, uh, by that I mean recognized by the majority as having a low risk of causing an adverse response in you, yeah. those organisms may not, in their independent position, be capable of providing anything other than a benign transitory um, bulk to the fecal material. Mm. Their relationship depends entirely upon the context of the host, and the host response to those organisms depends on their context. And then there's a dynamic interplay that relates those two together, which is what you eat. So whilst there's about 200 parasites, for example, which are uh, recognized as having potential benefit uh, for, for humans, and I know you want to talk about parasites mm. today, there are many thousands that are recognized to be ultimately problematic. And if you place those in that good pile and bad pile, to some extent, you can be reasonably confident that it's definitely not a good idea to have schistomoniasis 
um, I don't think that there's it'd be a very small percentage of the population that wouldn't have an adverse response to that organism. Um, and then trichuosuris, which is a pig whipworm, um, which most people wouldn't necessarily want to have taken into their digestive tract, appears to have a relatively beneficial or at least a benign response. But the question is not really just about the presentation of those organisms. It's about how the immune system and our receptors that we inherit both from our parents uh, and those that we mature due to exposure during our lifetime, you know, once that we train, what they think about the proteins that these organisms excrete, whether they are recognizable because they look very similar to those which are present in us or whether they're non-recognizable uh, because they're recognized immediately to require some form of evacuation or that complex in-between bit mm. where they are what we call alarmins or damage-associated microbial patterns, which are slightly distorted, normally occurring protein aggregates or fats that are excreted by these organisms. But in a good day, and I'm going to be simplistic here, but in a day in which a human's immune response is contextually correct, would ignore but if that context is wrong, and that can be because of stress or associated co-infection, malnutrition, fatigue, corresponding drug intake, absence of appropriate organisms necessary to maintain or hold uh, an immunologically benign response, that response suddenly becomes disproportionate. And so if we ask the question then, well, it doesn't appear that this person is carrying any pathological or provocational organism, yet they're just not well, the temptation, if we become didactic and say it's only good or bad, is to move on and look for an alternative explanation. And I think that the skill set that has definitely changed in the last 20 years is an increasing recognition right across the research spectrum that there is a graded level of relevance. There are those which we can clearly say fall into the it's highly unlikely at any point that your exposure to this organism is going to prove you beneficial. Uh, the other end of the spectrum that it's highly likely that your exposure to this organism is ever going to be anything other than benign, possibly beneficial. And then there's this constant grey area in the middle which is not dictated to you simply by the organism, either a parasite, bacteria or virus, mm. but the context in which you as the host are at the time you get that exposure. Right. So as you said before, we are going to be talking about parasites as therapy. So when a friend is a foe and when a foe is a friend. But when did the concept of using parasites as therapy first start? Was it like an, a, an observation with poorer, notion, poorer nations having lower incidence of inflammatory disease or you know, kind of like the turmeric with cancer issue? Was, is that how it started? Well, it's definitely originated from epidemiological observations to begin with. It wasn't um, the other way around, in mm. which someone gave an individual a parasite to see what happened. And, and, and arguably, Joel Weinstock um, was probably the first immunologist, certainly the first immunologist I heard, and uh, at a conference discussing the relationship between a loss of organism that has historically shared us um, 
and that where there was an inverse relationship between parasitic decline, there seemed to be an increase in both certain types of chronic diseases, but in particular at that time it was inflammatory respiratory stresses, uh, namely asthma. And so atopic type diseases in which there is some form of historical susceptibility carry through your genes for a risk to an allergen appeared to be much higher in proportional expression of the population where there'd be a long history of parasite eradication. And so Joel's um, notion was, of course, um, triggered by the Strachan uh, story of the hygiene hypothesis, which yeah. is that somehow or other uh, we've become discordant with our environment. We uh, and, and we definitely have across many levels, but his proposal was that we were missing counter-regulatory mechanisms that were historically given to us by us sharing a slightly dirtier exposure to our food sources. And uh, Joel went on to perhaps um, wrestle away from bacteria and viruses to helmets and uh, very first tried a colitis study with 10 patients in which he gave them a uh, an a non-reproducing pigwit worm called Trichuricerus, hmm. and eight of those ten people showed a resolution in an aggressive form of colitis that had been unresponsive to other types of therapy. Right. And if you like, that's probably the translation between epidemiological data observation to, hmm, let's try a small clinical study, um, and... It's carried on from there, and, and Joel's work continues, uh, mostly in Europe. In England, we have a group at uh, Nottingham University that have um, been exploring a hookworm called Necator americanus, yes. where uh, that is rather disgustingly placed onto your skin so that it enters your bloodstream, penetrates your tissues. Normally, it's go for the foot, uh, but for the purpose of lab work, it's put onto the dorsal surface of your hand. It enters the bloodstream, migrates through, eventually it enters your lungs. You cough it up and then swallow it, at which point it begins its life cycle inside your gastrointestinal tract for approximately 30 to 50 days before it's excreted. Now, in both cases, uh, one would have to say that these are the best studied. Um, there are other um, there's about 28 organisms from memory that have been explored. These are the best studied ones. There's no apparent adverse response for these two organisms based on the work done so far, but that doesn't mean to say that they're risk-free. Yeah. And um, quite naturally, uh, there has evolved what we would refer to as a black market for parasites. Um, you can acquire access to both of these through third-party resellers in Mexico, uh, where, quite reasonably, people who are frustrated at the fact that this has not yet made it into a therapeutic environment, but that the research seems quite compelling, mm. are fed up with waiting and, and have to go themselves. But I'm going to chuck my cautionary note in early for yep. you, Andrew, yep. which is that uh, this is entirely off-label. Uh, intervention. And whilst I have helped patients acquire organisms for the purpose of determining whether or not we can resolve some of their complex health problems, uh, they don't allow for individual clinicians or practitioners to bring these in mm. and then prescribe or sell them. Yes. Yeah. It 
it's an incomplete science. And even though I would say I've studied this for 10 years, uh, there is a lot of the unknown. However, I recognize and have recognized in certain patients that we are running out of options. Mm. And this is very low risk, comparatively speaking, but not fully understood and indicated. Used it, I have seen success. Um, but it's not easy to get hold of them. It raises lots of questions ethically. Yeah. And I would say a big cautionary note is this is something that most people should be watching with interest but not thinking about turning their practice into a helmet-driven therapeutic centre. I might also say to our listeners that um, if you look up Necator Americanus, it is the poster child of Fright Night. Um, it is... <laughs> Uh, um, some of the other worms like Trichurus suus and Trichurus murus, and they look rather benign, but um, um, that former one looks rather frightening, doesn't it? <laughs> and I guess it's got yeah, a chew-through uh, foot skin, doesn't it? Yeah, so. yeah it, uh, and look, the guys that um, first had to work for this, um, I think it was Sumatra, I think it was Sumatra they went to, but... Um, lead researcher and a bunch of postdocs were sent down to uh, work amongst the indigenous tribe that had first been identified as a primary source for Necator Americanus. Well, of course, uh, this is collected from their stools. So the postdocs had this charming job of sifting through fecal material. Fantastic. Whilst this had just been recently evacuated in order that they could try and capture some of these species who um, trap them and bring them back for interventions. Now, often missed out in research papers is the joy, of course, of data collection. And uh, uh, when I met with some of these guys, they were saying that obviously there are no um, formal sanitary facilities for these tribes, and therefore they basically empty their bowels uh, pretty much wherever they want. So they had to try and encourage them to empty their bowels in one particular place that went for a filter so they could try and extract the material. And uh, part of their re-inoculation that takes place, of course, is that people tread in other people's human fecal material wandering around these um, tribal areas and these worms penetrate through the sole of the foot or through the dorsum of the foot and re-enter the bloodstream. So they have a perpetual recycling effect. Right. Uh, so you can see why uh, one has to try and cleanse the whole concept of yes. uh, parasite infection, suggesting that your patients uh, migrate to a you know. parasite infected tribe. <laughs> Step in their poo. <laughs> but what was what what was particularly compelling to me at the time was that the researchers took some time off uh, to escape this uh, part and would climb up a, a very steep uh, set of mountains nearby. And uh, they were quite young and thought they were quite fit. But the uh, residents in their 50s would leave these guys standing with their stamina and their pace. Hmm. And the second question uh, that probably hasn't really been fully elucidated is that carrying with you a parasite that skillfully manipulates your immune system Hmm. to favor as long a lifespan inside you as it possibly can in order that it can become procreationally successful. Confers additional advantages to everything from muscle rebuilding to lung differentiation to oxygen transfer across tissues. And we can see this in some tentative studies where people with 
fatigue-related disorders, um, once their immune system becomes more tolerogenic, they are far more capable of achieving energy-associated activities. And I know you're not going to ask me this question, uh, but I'll chuck it in. And it's quite clearly a relationship between disturbed immune gastrointestinal balance Mm. and mitochondrial uh, capability in local tissue, such as dendritic or epithelial cells, uh, but also um, submucosal tissues in terms of mitochondrial fitness become disorientated uh, and less efficient, and they trigger an inbuilt mechanism, which you remember is a type of cytosolic-driven inflammatory molecule called the inflammasome. And the consequence of that is a migratory release of a enzyme that stimulates the production of a cytokine called interleukin-1. Now, IL-1, if you look at the research that's been done with elite athletes, and IL-6 are the cytokines that compress desire to push through fatigue. So if you're highly fit, then muscle capability may continue long beyond uh, the requirements of your event. But the breakdown and the collapse or tissue injury that occurs releases these secondary um, immune molecules that penetrate the blood-brain barrier and convey a message to you. It says, basically, stop running around, you idiot. You're going to die. Move off and recover. And this is what happens in some patients with uh, a dysbiotic and persistently adversely inflamed response in the mucosa is that mitochondria become damaged, they act as a cytosolic trigger, they set up into looking one, they migrate from the gut to the brain, that produces a state of persistent fatigue. Yeah. So work it the other way, these guys that have a very well-balanced immune responses, they mop up IL-1, they don't increase its production, and what they do is see a genuine capability to achieve a physical um, capacity because they're not having to put up with that secondary central nervous system inhibitory molecule that the PhD postdocs were experiencing far earlier. So that's also talking about... Um or has something to do with the work that you were doing with Carl Nicholson, wasn't it, with regards to uh, a nutritional approach to fatigue, looking at different, um, let's say, uh, simplistically say, fats? Yes. Uh, you know, Professor Nicholson, I've done, uh, published a number of papers. Garth, not on... Carl. Garth, Sorry, yeah. Garth Nicholson, yeah. Uh, we've published a number of papers on the relationship between the mitochondrial inner membrane, so functionality, it's porous, effectively, its ability to resist leakiness uh, for electron transfer and that subsequent oxidative stress induced by mitochondrial uh, damage facilitates a collapse of those mitochondria so that rather than being recycled, because our mitochondria are the most efficient uh, recyclers on the planet, unless they suffer from uh, inner membrane permeabilization, in which case they start fissuring and dropping out their contents, which become recognized by this uh, cellular mechanism as a potential risk. Or I mentioned to you earlier, it's sometimes referred to as a danger signal or an alarming, or perhaps more contemporaneously, that's referred to as sterile inflammation, right. where we have a piece of us. Yeah. That as things being provocative, and and you're saying that the you're saying these tribesmen 
that would have had a greater parasitic load had a lesser inflammation in their gut and therefore greater oxygenation and greater use of mitochondria because of that. Is that right? Well, partly what I'm saying is that this particular organism, Nicotora americanus, confers an immunological advantage to the person that has it, mm. but they get constant reinfection because of the environment in which they live, yeah. whereas the yeah. lab work is looking at a single or perhaps a double intervention. But the, the proposal is that they not only seem to be resistant to colitis, diabetes, asthma, cardiovascular disease, and cancer, but they also display what appears to be significant capabilities of physical endurance, and that requires energy production. If your immune system is overly activated, the amount of energy that you have to utilize to compensate for that is enormous. Right. You'll recall, I've said to you before, just increasing your core temperature by one degree as a defense mechanism consumes 20% of your total metabolic output right. of energy. Now, anybody who's unwell um, will recognize they tend to feel less energetic uh, than when they feel at their best. And there are many reasons for that. But this suggestion is that correctly sharing your gastrointestinal tract with an organism that confers an advantage to you by virtue of it attempting to live in you long enough also dampens down secondary risk for excess inflammation because of control over oxidative stress and cytokine induction through immune suppression. Which begs the question, which I know you're just about to ask yeah. me, <laughs> is that if we're looking at immunopathophysiology as an underlying explanatory mechanism for the massive increase in chronic diseases, then stepping back and saying, well, surely then, doesn't that open up the question that adding in organisms of reasonable stability and functionality must represent a possible therapeutic strategy going forward? So are we talking here with the maybe the aberrant action of IgE, immunoglobulin E, which we've evolutionarily developed to handle parasites, if it doesn't have anything to act on, we're too clean, that instead it acts in this um, inflammatory way. Is that where you're heading with this? Partly. Most researchers would accept that IgE has a distinct relationship with the presence of parasites and that the evolution of that arm of our adaptive immune system has probably been guided because of our long transient ingestion of a wide range of organisms from animals that we have eaten uh, through our history. Mm. However, there's also another viewpoint, Metnovich, um, Ruslan Metnovich, who I think is a future Nobel Prize winning immunologist. He's a very, very good lateral thinker. He, he dug up an idea a few years ago from memory that he wondered whether or not it was also a response to venom and to poisons and that often in our early experimental lives we would have eaten or come across a species that would have infected us with their venom or would have eaten something with a poisonous and IgE also has 
a fast-acting response to eliminate or at least try to eliminate some of those mechanisms. So Uh perhaps we can say that parasites and other types of challenges have formulated over our behavioral survival, IgE. And so the next question is, well, if IgE is now seen to be problematic, is it problematic because it wasn't designed? There's no evidence that it was designed, for example, to specifically look for the epitopes attached to pollen and seeds yeah, and other yeah. forms of inhaled antigens. If we had something that was switching that off, for example, Necator americanus was present, then that organism would apply a break. And the absence of that break means that we now have this excess capacity. Mm. I think there's some credit, I think there's some merit in that, but there is a evolving, as always with these things, a sort of a more uh, nuanced view here is that there are some proteins present from the excretions of a parasite that are very, very familiar to those that you and I would produce. And that helps us to uh, acquire tolerance uh, so that we don't immediately attempt to expel these organisms. Some of those proteins are never found in the allergens or the antigens, let's call them, that trigger a response. Mm, But what has also changed is that the environment in which these organisms or these parasites find themselves living or not living has changed as well. So that the secondary barrier to an adverse response to an IgE-triggering antigen is the diversity, mix, and composition of the bacteria. Now, we've definitely seen two things happen. We have far less diversity in the range of organisms that a typical Western lifestyle consumer has compared to our best-tracked nomadic hunter-gatherer tribe, which is the Hadza from Tanzania. They have about a 50% greater level of diversity of organisms to the average Westerner. So if we become too distracted and say, well, what we really need was to go back to transitory exposure to relatively safe parasites for therapy, the chances are that each generation that goes on there will respond differently to that parasite than the generation before because the bacteria which help to mediate that immune response are becoming less abundant. So this is one of the questions that rises up in parasite research, Mm -hmm. is that, is that parasite working well within the original tribe, not simply because it's there in greater numbers and that the immune system has received that signaling specifically from that, but that the bacterial co-populations have also evolved to support the parasitic survivability inside the gut. And if we then take that contextual human, take it to somebody in Brisbane who's lived the classic Western lifestyle with periodic antibiotic exposure, cesarean birth, consumed typically six primary food groups for the majority of their life and doesn't eat fecal material from the contents of wild animals running around in the bush very often, does that person's expectation that he will respond the same way to that um, parasite as an historical uh, transient host, should we say that that risk level then changes disproportionately and we shouldn't do it? 
And that's where I'm saying to you that there isn't a good and there isn't a bad, although we can say that this parasite falls within this perceived to be safe use hmm. with potential benefit. In low it numbers. It isn't delivered in isolation. Yeah. It, it arrives and has to share our space with all those other creatures that are either going to say, well, sorry, mate, we don't recognize you, and yeah. therefore we're not going to help you. Or that there's some there that will help you, but they're not enough, or there's a healthy, diversified mix, and you get it right. And I think that if you ask any of these research groups, they'll say that whilst they can't really write that up, that that lends itself to why we still see some research just not producing the outcomes that we would expect yeah. based on a pure um, deviation of uh, IgE and Th2 uh, helper cells. So it really goes back to that terrain that you've spoken of so many times, that it's not just one thing that you put in that you, that you use as treatment, but the whole kit and caboodle. The three, the three big things that is easy to understand is that food diversity, by which I mean a wide range of foods that are rich in fibers, but also contain historical innate immune defense molecules that confer an advantage to us, an inherited, rich, and very diverse microbiome, which could be supplemented at a later date, but uh, in some cases, we're always struggling because it just hasn't been adequate transfer. But nonetheless, it's yeah. manipulable by oral ingestion or by food and oral ingestion. And then the third arm is that there has to be some degree of immunological reprogramming, and that's that conversation you were fondly remembering from Brisbane all those years ago, which is when I was doing my whole sort of tour around much of the world at the time about how the immune system is reprogrammable. You don't have to accept the pattern that you become locked into, but to reprogram it requires a multifaceted approach. It's not a single drug intervention. Yeah. And then the, the, the last bit, really, is that certain nutrients, and they're quite simple, they're primarily vitamins A and D um, for the small intestine, and then energetic nutrients for the colon, by which I mean CoQ10 and uh, elements that improve mitochondrial function, so certain types of lipids, for example, in the colon. If you bring that combination together, even if you're missing some of the contextually requiring organisms based on our historical notion of what should be a perfect uh, eubiotic mix, you can buffer or accommodate losses. And this is the whole idea of immunological capability for redundancy. And uh, if you look at any of the bridges that you drive over uh, in the um, Australian road system, Engineers build redundancy into every bridge mm. so that if one element fails, you and your car and the bridge are not going to end up in the water. Yeah. There has to be multiple failures. Our immune system is beautifully engineered to carry with it lots of redundancy, but we are de-redundancy capability engineering out our immune system. And that's because of our lifestyle, our food choices and lack of diversity, our lack of exposure to provocative agents that reinduce that diversity, different types of birthing processes, so there's more cesarean, less vaginal delivery, less transfer of organisms from generation to generation, the overuse of antibiotics and the adverse effect of the gene transfer orgy that takes place in our colon has got, gone awry. And depending on your 
predilection, you can transfer that out into different types of emotional interactions with our environment uh, too much. Um, uh, the hygiene theory used to historically fall on the increased use of um, chemicals for uh, debugifying our environment. That has a modest, if any, effect whatsoever. But I do think that there's a reasonable point to say that if you are environmentally sterile, by which I mean you never live a life in which you roam through the woods or play at the beach or, or immerse yourself in some muddy terrain somewhere, mm. that you do miss out on some form of exchange between the organisms that live in that soil or that environment, plus the emotional, ecological advantage of experiencing nature. All of these things come to have a role. And so when you're sat in your clinic room and you're facing somebody that has a problem, you've got to try and squash all that down to some very sensible, practical tools that you know are going to have a a reasonable, predictable effect on that individual because otherwise you just get lost in the story and don't end up with anything practical. So... Going back to that old friends, and, and you know, if you have too many of them, they can become old enemies. Um, where do you make the distinction between the presence of a parasite or an infection or an infestation of a parasite causing problems for your patient? Um, like, you know, you, you speak of, let's say, Necator americanus, and it's one, I think it was one to four organisms. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas, for instance, you spoke about the Hadza tribe, and I have quite a few times too, you know, Jeff Leach um, never seemed to uh, in, um, encounter a real issue with parasitic infection, um, dis- despite him um, inserting fecal matter into his rectum from a Hadza tribe member um, via a takey bur- um, baster, I remember, <laughs> which was a lovely thing. That's true, but don't, don't forget, uh, they're quite large organisms, and so as you filter fecal material so that you extract just the liquid for reinsertion, you 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 will, in most cases, be able to just mechanically extrude uh, the larger organisms uh, anyway. Right. I don't think there's any doubt that um, nomadic tribes will have both transitory and some permanent infestation with organisms, but they've become exceptionally accommodative to them. It doesn't mean to say they won't suffer from periodic short-term infection. Yeah, they do. But, yeah. Um, because they're going to eat something they shouldn't eat or they're going to get some form of uh, periodic exposure to somebody else's uh, pathogen. But they have a very robust redundancy capability so that they can shed an enormous amount of mucus, cytokines, fluids, organisms, etc., and not so distort the balance inside the gastrointestinal tract that they don't reset themselves again. And ultimately, I'm sure you've heard this expression, that the homeostatic set point of immunology has changed. And um, it changes in all of us at different times during our lifespan because as we age, immunology uh, evolves and becomes slightly more inflammatory. Short-term illnesses deliberately generate a new homeostatic set point for the purpose of facilitating our survival. If they don't return to the previously tolerogenic set point, i.e. they remain shifted, Hmm. that accumulative effect over time is what is being proposed to generate most of our chronic non-infectious illnesses. So a historical tribe like the Hadza had a fantastic 
range of redundancy mechanisms still operational to recover and rebound from what we would consider to be annoying but not necessarily life-threatening events. We don't, um, by which I mean, I don't just mean you and I as being specially picked on here. I mean the vast numbers of people that live in the 21st century in Western worlds don't have that level of redundancy in their immune system. And that's why the yuck-type therapies, such as fecal transplant therapy and uh, parasite transfer therapy, previously sidelined to the mysterious world of weird science, has in the last five or six years re-emerged as conversations or topics that make it into Radio 4, the Sunday Times, front of Time magazine, because, frankly, medicine, from a pharmaceutical perspective, has nothing like as sophisticated an armory to offer without amazing levels of risk that some of these older ideas, which is, you know, 13th century Chinese medicine, fecal transplant therapy has been written about. Uh, and although we look at it just for Clostridium difficile with a degree of reproductive uh, confidence around 95% success rate, 93-95%, there are thousands of people and small research groups trying to extrapolate whether fecal transplant therapy, uh, which is then sanitized for the purpose of making it much more acceptable to people who may choose them to swallow some form of active components in capsules rather than taking a nasogastric tube or um, an enema insertion of fecal material. That's where I think the drug industry are going to do their very, very best to try and consolidate by identifying single particulates that they can reproduce and where they miss the point. We convey more than the presence of organisms. We convey messages. You can't measure those messages because they are determined by the health of the host, not by the quantity of the product. Right. And that health of the host is improved significantly by what they eat, how they think, how they move, and what they do. And if we constantly get dragged down the idea that uh, there's a pill for an ill, which that mentality falls into naturopathic medicine practice just as much as it does into pharmaceutical practice, Mm, mm. uh, we'll miss some of those great subtleties and where we have a very safe and reasonably reproducible strategy now that will be refined, but it it will be lost if we end up thinking we've just got to save six bacteria, grow them in a tank on a simple growth medium, whack them in a capsule and stick them down your neck and uh, all forms of adverse inflammatory responses will resolve. Yeah. Just won't be the case. Yeah. Here, here. Absolutely. Just just sort of closing off on some of the parasites, um, the parasitic research that's going on. I, I think I sent a paper to you, or, or it was a, a story just looking in mice, um, and that was using the mouse um, whipworm, the Trichurus muis, um, and they were looking at how it might actually help to benefit other microbes growing in the gut and therefore help in decreasing inflammatory disease. But I'm looking at another one right now here, and it's actually James Cook University in in Queensland here. Um, November 2015, hookworm larvae to be injected into celiacs in a bid to treat gluten intolerance. I mean, this is exciting stuff. So how far away are we from 
um, having these parasites, a certain selection of them, accepted into mainstream where medicine or natural naturopathic medicine? A long way. <laughs> and the reason is, is because what ultimately happens is that the original organism is utilized in these early stages. Yeah. Then it becomes a situation about reproducibility. Uh, how consistent can you make that become for other labs to get the same results? Because, as I said to you, one of the problems that occurs is that you see other labs take up the work and they are either indifferent in their results or, or not, or perhaps the opposite happens. These symptoms appear to worsen. The fundamental issue here is it's quite crude medicine at the moment. Yeah. They're taking a um, an organism and giving it to another organism and expecting to get a reasonably consistent uh, response, despite the fact that there will be a considerable level of variation in the bacterial composition of the persons receiving it. Hmm. If you take a mouse and rip out all this, or breed it so there's no organisms in there, you can do a certain amount of consistent exposure. You can give one organism to that mouse, or you can transfer some organisms to that mouse because they have nothing in there to start with. Yeah. You can't sterilize a human's gut. Yeah, that's right. So you're, you always have that problem moving from a mouse model to a human model is that humans are really, really annoying. They don't like living in caves and they're not happy to live on mouse chow and they get very grumpy if you sterilise them. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so so does this explain why I, I, I remember one of the the companies that was researching whipworms and I think they were using it in Crohn's disease and the, they were, had a larger trial, phase two trial, and it just totally failed and their stock plummeted. Mm. Because of that, is, is that what you're talking about here? Is that you know you're asking, you're asking us to trust faith on one little organism that inhabits a gut with a plethora of organisms that are in constant interplay. Well, the first thing is if you give something to an IBD patient, they've already uh, lost the ability to distinguish between friend and foe yeah. from a, yeah. a bacterial perspective. Mm. They've um, their pattern recognition receptors are oversensitized, and certain types of genetically inherited codes that would typically be ignored are no longer being ignored. If you drop into that environment another organism, which we're saying it will turn up and overwhelm the inappropriate responses by facilitating a lot of other pattern recognizing elements to, say, switch on IL-10, TGF-beta, Treg cells, and induce the defensive immune responses, it's a big ask. Yeah, by itself, yeah. Your, your, your IBD patient has um, already got quite a challenge taking place in the first place. Mm. So these are what we call, or, or are referred to as um, poorly defined events. How do you qualify these? So what level of perturbed microbiota they have? What level of existing epithelial activation is taking place? What level of neurotransmitter disturbances are existing in there? What is the differentiation between CD4 and CD8 T cells? What's macrophage activity response? Um, what's dendritic cell sensitivity like? Is there increased peristalsis occurring? Therefore, it just cannot stay there long enough. And finally, what's the enteric nervous system's mechanisms? Those are elements that are very, very difficult to measure on somebody mm. before you give them the organism. Yeah. And what you're trying to do with that organism is you're trying to uh, switch off epithelial alarmins. You're trying to uh, 
promote through bone marrow activation some induction of naive cells and thymus activation, some dose of naive cells that can be converted. And you're trying to train those specialized antigen-presenting cells to become more tolerogenic. If you don't have adequate retinoic acid present in the gastrointestinal tract, this is a very, very simple analogy here, Mm. or you lack through genetic predisposition, the enzyme to convert from beta-carotene to retinoic acid, adequate quantities to facilitate dendritic cells producing a consistent regulatory response, you favor the induction of Th17 defensive molecules. So rather than ending up with the T-regulated cell, which is the policeman that calms everything down, you end up with the vandal, uh, Th17, which is there primarily to defend you, and it just increases inflammation. So the patient falls away from you rather than falling towards you. So to me, it seems like it's another another incidence in which researchers um, bastardize the way in which naturopathic medicine works by giving a too simplistic therapy. Your very first question to me this morning was about good and bad, Mm. and that's the whole notion, is that if you specialize your delivery down to a single molecule, you misunderstand the power of the immune system inside the gastrointestinal tract. Switching off one receptor is highly unlikely to produce an outcome that you can say is fully beneficial for the person receiving that trigger. In some cases, it's catastrophically bad for them. In other cases, it rescues them from an acute position of morbidity. But what we're chatting about is how do we utilize this lovely knowledge base? One, we need to know more and more about the bacteria that live in a healthy host. Secondly, we need to know what geography, in terms of where they were born, how they live their life and how that has changed in effect because once you introduce something that they've never seen before into that environment, it has a different effect. Thirdly, you cannot separate the need for nutrient availability from immune functionality. It doesn't work. So if you don't ensure there's adequate levels of vitamins A and D, and I'm only simplifying to these two just to make this a, a simple process, but yeah. there are many other nutrients that are absolutely essential, including specialized fats. And then thirdly, uh, that you don't recognize or don't understand what their current both innate and adaptive immune response is, where they're currently set. Aggressive single monotherapies get it wrong many, many times. Mm. And uh, that's why stool transfer, which makes people everywhere go, oh, I just don't think I could do that, is so blissfully safe and successful. Once mm. you stripped out all risk of infectious agents, you're delivering millions uh, yeah. of little friends who unusually end up living inside you. Yeah. Unlike a probiotic, which is a you know, basically a traveler, mm. you've you've got a reset. And I think that that's gonna frustrate the pharmaceutical industry forever. And where we'll always be left with an increasing number of clinics setting themselves up around Australia and elsewhere where this type of banking of healthy stool samples and then transferring it into unhealthy humans 
oh, I said it five years, and it's happening already, but I can see it happening more and more. Oh, this yeah. will be regulated to the point that it becomes acceptable. Mm. Professor Tom Barodi in Five Doc in Sydney um, has been using faecal transplants for many serious gut diseases, including C. difficile, Clostridium difficile infection. And I think the rates are something like prevention of relapse of 76% or something. Um, I may well be wrong on that, but that's huge because antibiotics, vancomycin, flagell, they don't get that response. They commonly get reinfection. So 76% success rate, if you like, um, is is massive in these patients. Professor Brody is a legend in uh, in his own lifetime. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's strange to think that you could make an entire career out of transferring stool material from one person to another, but... Uh, without doubt, he has uh, re-energized that whole field of research and uh, it's spun out from much of the work that he's done. So hats off to him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my last question for you, Mike, before we have to go is we've spoken before just about the presence of, of a parasite versus an infection of a parasite. And this was highlighted today um, in, this is Wednesday, 20th of April, 2016, in Medical Observer Australia, where they spoke about a, a call by specialists to stop testing for blastocystis hominis unless there's a liquid stool present. You've written quite extensively about blastocystis hominis and that it's a facultative parasite rather than obligate parasite. Can you take us through how you would um, treat somebody who had blastocystis and put it into a context for us? There's two things uh, at the beginning. One is that B. hominis has various subtypes and no lab for standard stool tests does subtyping on B. hominis. Right. And the early researchers doing this work probably seven or eight years ago, and I would need to revisit their work to see how much more they've published since because I haven't uh, looked for that recently. But what they very clearly set out was this, from memory, there are approximately 20 subtypes of which two were consistently found to be symptomatic in humans. And that means that 18 subtypes of B. hominis uh, are non-symptomatic. Now, symptoms, of course, vary from one person to another. But let's just say, first of all, that some types of B. hominis appear to be far less likely to cause you a problem right. than others. And the vast majority of B. hominis subtypes appear to be falling into the low-risk category. Right. And that immediately explains to everybody listening why you will sometimes do a stool test, find B. hominis, but would really struggle to say that there's a watery diarrhea Association, and even if you try and treat B. hominis, that watery diarrhea doesn't go away. Yeah. So I don't agree that you should stop testing for B. hominis, but I do think that one should perhaps persuade labs thinking that gene typing on B. hominis is something they should bring forward uh, because that would help the physician make a much clearer decision about whether it's worth doing some form of investigation, some form of treatment, gotcha. uh, or whether it's something that can be uh, regarded at this stage as being of no great risk. And don't forget, um, one of the uh, questions that I think is important for all of us to ask ourselves is, is if um, B. hominis is removed, and depending on which technique one wants to use for yeah, this. Yeah, what takes its place? If you remove it, 
is the act of removing that going to cause more problems yeah, yeah. than leaving it there? Yeah. Because if we have some capability with the hominus, as with any parasite, to induce an immune tolerance, perhaps those subtypes that are non-problematic for humans are actually conferring some transitory benefit and that when we remove that, another organism, which we hadn't regarded as being pathobiotic or pathological, gains some increased uh, synophilic response and uh, subsequently we end up with more diarrhea. Mm. So I, I don't think we should stop testing for it, but I do think we should try and approach um, its relevance uh, to human health more contextually. Uh, and uh, that's not actually that easy in terms of you can't do subtyping from your local lab. Yeah. Um, but a good case history and a careful analysis of the rest of the organisms in the stool test will give you some idea. Now, how do I treat it? Um, without using um, drugs, we use, um, I tend to use uh, an oregano concentrate, which has a high level of carvacrol, which is a slow-release product so that it passes far enough down the digestive tract in order that it can impart its antimicrobial components. One of the nice things about carvacrol, it's also an immunomodulator. So a benefit of using concentrated oregano extract is that you do uh, not only induce some oxidative stress, which has a reasonable uh, effect against uh, B. hominis. It's not um, obviously persistent on its own, but it mm. does also reduce some of the adverse effect from liver polysaccharide and peroxynitrite like induction. Yep. The second thing is an IgA induction. Uh, that's the secretory component of the immunoglobulin A inside the gastrointestinal tract is absolutely essential in order to achieve a successful eradication of blastocystis hominis. So you should always measure IgA. Uh, you can do that in stools, which is reasonable. I prefer to do it in saliva. Mm -hmm. And you and I both know the Saccharomyces boulardii. Um, which is my most favorite of all organisms for uh, immunomodulation, induces uh, IgA production in people who do not have an IgA genetic insufficiency. Now, in children with B. hominis, Saccharomyces boulardii and subsequent IgA induction is extremely effective um, right. on its own. Yeah. So you can use Saccharomyces boulardii in children. Now, in adults, I don't think that's enough. I also use uh, other... Uh, bacteria, and you would choose a lactic acid bacterial species that are known to induce interleukin 10 and TGF-beta. These are immunomodulating chemicals that seem paradoxically to favor the protection of the immune response to eradication. But what you need to do is you need to have your potent antimicrobial, whether this be the drug or I'm saying carvacrol. I don't know whether you can use um, Artemisinin in Australia is that available you, to you can use there? you can use Artemisia annua, but you can't standardise it for Artemisinin. Um, okay. Yeah, or you could, but you All can't right, label so it. it. Yeah. All right. So Artemisinin annua is less effective than Artemisinin on its own, but it yeah. combined with Carvacrol present in um, uh, oregano, then you've got a, a dual strategy with. Um, uh, antimicrobial capabilities. Yeah. When you're talking about lactic acid bacteria um, uh, in, yes. inducing um, IL-10 and TGF-beta, um, is that LGG are you talking about? 
Yes. Yep. Yeah. Any others there, or yeah. just the LGZ? Paracaceae will do some. So will Plantarum, and uh, some some strains of Rhamnosus. Um, we've gone through these sort of strains and genus discussions before. Yeah. Is that the strains need to be checked against human studies rather than just animal studies? to see whether or not there's a circulating level of the cytokines present in serum uh, or in lavages so that you can see that it does actually have that effect because uh, some organisms will not have that effect. They may have other benefits, but they won't do that. Yeah. So typically, I'm using between 500 and 1,000 milligrams of uh, Saccharomyces boulardii for an adult, a uh, range of um, carvacrol containing oregano, and then Artemis and then Annua. There are other antimicrobial herbs that uh, different practitioners may favor, but they're taken away from uh, the Saccharomyces, so they're not taken at the same time. So yeah. typically I would use the antimicrobials in the morning, and I would add in the uh, Saccharomyces in divided doses between lunchtime and evening. And all of these things, of course, are done within the context of the size, age, and physical capabilities of the individual. Mm. But for children, it is nice. There's two studies published um, from my memory that uh, Saccharomyces boulardii uh, works in the sort of seven, the three to seven-year-old group on its own. Because without protea- without uh, getting IgA induction, they will re- uh, reproduce. You need, because they, they try to do uh, blastosomus, try to break down IgA. So if you have the active form, you've got to overly induce IgA in order that you can mop up and remove the uh, reproductive components of blastosomus. Otherwise, as you know, and many practitioners in this will know, they do their treatment and do another test six weeks later and guess what? Guess what it's it. not only there, but it's, uh, it's there in greater quantities because mm. inadvertently you've often removed some of the mechanisms that were holding it in place in the first time in, by your treatment. Mm. Just remember that if you think that we know a lot, these parasites that are found in animals and humans have spent millions of years learning how to manipulate us and their other mammalian hosts to perform activities to facilitate their longevity. And um, the skills that these little creatures use exceed the knowledge of most researchers currently. And therefore, we have a big gap between capability and comprehension. Mike Ash, I I do love the way that you don't oversimplify therapy and you keep it real basically for the patient in front of a practitioner where things just aren't as simple as a textbook, um, you know, treatment protocol, I use that word flippantly, um, that things just aren't as simple and you've got to be able to adjust your therapy as to what their needs are, what their terrain is at that point. I also um, thank you for taking us through the importance or the the interesting research that's going on with regards to the therapeutic application of various parasites, albeit off-label and in its infancy in medicine. But um, I thank you so much for taking us through some of the interesting aspects of that. And lastly, to give us some highlights of how you'd treat certain parasites that are presenting in Australia um, and giving us a balanced view on that. So thank you so much for taking us through that. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to have another chat with you. (laughs) And I look forward to more in the future, Mike, particularly in Australia. Just remember, 
remember to invite me. <laughs> this is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm-hmm.